This is Jim Semivan, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank user interviews for sponsoring this episode. Folks, after the holiday period, many of us start to feel that pinch in our bank balances. I know with having young kids, I certainly do. So earning a little extra income never hurts. That's where user interviews can help you out. It's completely free to sign up. By giving some of your time, you can get paid for providing feedback on new or existing products with companies like Spotify, Adobe, Intuit and Amazon, among those looking to speak with quality participants. Most studies are less than one hour and pay over $68. Some studies pay several hundred dollars for a one-to-one interview. This is one that really does give you something back for your time and I'm really glad to be able to give folks an opportunity to make a bit of extra cash at a very tough time of year. So why not even stick on an episode of the podcast while you sign up? That can take less than five minutes. Are you ready to earn extra income from sharing your expert opinion? Then head over to userinterviews.com slash hello to sign up and participate today. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined on the podcast today by an author, researcher and experiencer. His name is Steve Aspen and he's here to discuss his brilliant book, Out of Time, The Intergenerational Abduction Programme Explored. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi Andy, good to be here. Very good yeah, very good to finally have you on. We've had to reschedule once or twice, but but here we are. Um, and Steve, I always like to start off the podcast speaking to the guests with just a little bit about yourself and your own background. Sure. And I commonly ask how the UFO topic first became a part of your life. Was it a TV show? Was it a book you read? But for you, the, the phenomenon has really played a part in not only your own life, but your family's too, hasn't it? Yeah, but... Um... It has, but I didn't realise, none of us realised, I didn't realise until my 50s that it was to do with unidentified flying objects or aliens at all. I I thought as a child, as did my, um, you know, my mother and grandmother, I cloaked it in, um, it's folklore, it's uh, something weird and... uh, it's one of those things that's part of human life and it's, it's part of the uh, ancestral stuff and um, it's one of those strange things. And, you know, my mother was um, uh, very attracted to spiritualism and she cloaked it in uh, the afterlife and uh, spirits talking to her and that kind of thing. And she was a medium. Was, she wasn't a medium. She used to go and visit mediums. But she became uh, a quite successful spirit, um, spiritual healer in her final years uh, uh, with us, which she died in 2000, uh, 23 years ago. And my grandmother, I only had one conversation about the phenomenon with her, and she cloaked it absolutely in the fairies and the pixies paradigm because – Growing up in a uh, in a, a Yorkshire farm as a Yorkshire farmer's daughter, and later in a in a uh, an urban area of, of West Yorkshire in the early twentieth century, she had nothing else to uh, explain it, and she, that's how that's the the framework she put in it. So until I was fifty one, I didn't really connect it with alien abduction at all, or the or extra, the extraterrestrial paradigm. I had no idea about that. So. I was, I was going to say that those, yeah, those labels of pixies, fairies, and 
it's funny because people in a modern setting can sometimes laugh those off as, you know, pixies and fairies and such don't exist. But like yeah. you say, if you go back 50, 60, 70 years and even further back than that, these are just labels for things that weren't understood at the time or people had no, you know, frame of reference for. If you go back to Roman times, there's there's talk of yeah. flying shields or burning shields in the sky because they didn't know about flying saucers or even aircraft at the time. Mm. So you, you talk about it how you know it. So I think that's important to reference that when we hear about angels and demons even. Sure. These are just ways of describing entities that are just yeah, there are, uh, unknown. There are... Um, a number of uh, extraordinary things in the natural world, and uh, all these, all these paradigms, all these um, things that interest people, and uh, things that they connect themselves to, are you know are possibly have some reality to them. I mean, um, the alien abduction thing is what my book is about because it's it's the core of it explains everything that's happened to my family uh, throughout the generations. And, um, even obviously many of your, your, um, audience will understand about, uh, Jack Vallée's passport to Magonia thesis, which, which he published in 1979, which attached the whole flying saucer extraterrestrial paradigm to the, the, the folklore and, and fairies, um, you know, throughout history. And um, that's actually served to muddy the waters about the abduction um, subject somewhat. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't his intention to do that, but it's, it's actually, it, it's, it's actually um, what a lot of people in the, in the field attach themselves to or, or give a great deal of credence to. And I think possibly more credence in it than it actually deserves. In what way, what do you think, are people picking up these ideas and applying them rather than experiencing those for themselves and describing them? Well, um, it, it's... Um, <clears throat> the, the Magonia thesis is quite common in the UFO field, if you go to conferences and mix with people or go on uh, um, chat forums and so forth, there, it, it comes up again and again, this, this idea that, that John Keel had of, um, of uh, Operation Trojan Horse and the, the, the cri mm. crypto, crypto terrestrial idea that there's beings inside the planet that's it respons largely responsible for the flying saucer um, phenomenon. And I think... My personally, I think it's one hundred percent of it is is extraterrestrial in origin. But it, it it because they're so rooted in popular culture in so many ways, they it's often interpreted that way. And you mentioned that the the phenomenon itself wasn't something that occurred to you until you were in your fifties. And That's I'm right. right in saying you yeah. you wrote most of the book last year in twenty twenty two. Is that right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I had um, chapter one in draft for more than 10 years and I, um, I had sketched out a couple of things that I wanted to cover. Should I ever commit to writing the manuscripts and publishing? And the, the brief story is in 2007, I, I realized, finally realized that uh, I, the abduction phenomenon 
had been happening to me all my life. Uh, if you read, if your readers, um, your viewers read the book, they will wonder why when they read through chapter one, which is about 25 pages, why it didn't occur to me any earlier, which is, you know, shocking, really. It didn't. Um, it, because it, it just literally never occurred to me, even though I'd read Whitley Strieber's Communion in 1987, and I knew mm. about the alien abduction as a subject, which I'd come across because I, I was kind of intri- uh, fascinated by uh, the UFO uh, subject from a, 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 even as a child. And I really didn't put it together, but what you know, in, in, in 2007, I actually put it together, and that sent me off, um, set me off on an investigative journey. To, uh, first of all, I read Bud Hopkins's books, uh, where I always knew about him, I'd heard of him, but I was, I was, had no interest in pursuing his works. But I finally read them in 2007. I read the books of Dr. J, David Jacobs. I read a few more books, like you know, like the. John Max books from the Harvard University and Ray Fowler and a number of these people, particularly in the United States, you know, the, the authors there. And um, I, I'd seen Nick Pope on TV because uh, he's a he's a great media presence. And at the time, he was working for the Ministry of Defense, UK Ministry of Defense, and I'd seen him on late night television uh, quite a bit and uh, on, on documentaries on the Discovery Channel and so forth. So I contacted Nick. Found his uh, address, uh, his email address on the internet, and I wrote to him. And I didn't expect to reply, but he replied within a few hours. And um, he messed up with me, and he gave me a great deal of guidance uh, in during the first year or so of my engagement uh, with the subject. And I set off on a quest to try and meet with fundamentally with Bud Hopkins, which I, whose books impressed me the most, and he was seen to be. Um, really, really deeply into this. And, and, and what he wrote about was precisely and exactly what re- reflected in my own life. And I thought, you know, if, if this guy has, has come to understand this so well, um, I want to meet this guy. And um, <clears throat> chapter six is the story of my efforts to meet Bob, Bud Hopkins, which lasted over a year including several visits to the United States uh, before I actually met him right at the end of 2008 um, when he he contacted me by telephone out of the blue because my wife had found a scoop mark scar on my right shoulder and um, she said, I've seen these in books on, on, you know, UFOs and stuff and books on abductions. I actually had no, acquaint- no acquaintance with, with the body scarring at all, really, and not, not in detail. And she sent the photos off to a few researchers who she knew uh, in the United States. Uh, she'd gotten to know. And um, by, via Peter Robbins and, and a rather circuitous route, they found them their, their way to Bud Hopkins. Just so happened that Breakthrough Films were working with Bud Hopkins, uh, making a film about his work, and uh, they wanted some uh, fresh scoop mark scars, that, that cases that had never been in the public domain before, never been investigated. So Bud phoned me up in at the end of September 2008 and asked if I'd go to Manhattan, and he offered me to stay in his apartment, and he said... Um, We'd be there for a week, and I'd be interviewed by uh, the 
producer and owner of uh, Breakthrough Films, and we go to a Manhattan uh, leading dermatological uh, laboratory, and it would my skull would be biopsied, and a, and a, and a pathology, pathology report would be uh, issued, and we would do the whole thing. So in 2008, in early December, we actually finally went there, and I, I finally met both face-to-face. But that was the end of a very long process, and this this visit was serendipitous in that it wasn't really initiated by me eventually because he's very hard to uh, to reach, uh, but I mean, he was... Um, you probably know that he died in 2011, uh, but he he was quite seriously ill for quite a long time before that with two different types of cancer, and um, yeah, when it went remission, and then he got worse and so forth. So when in during 2008, he he'd been booked to appear at a couple of conferences, which I'd gone to in the hope of meeting him, and both times he didn't uh, show because of illness. He he had to cancel. So this meeting in at the end of 2008 was unexpected and very fortuitous, and it had it led to a whole host of uh, doors opening to me and, and uh, it led to me, me understanding the phenomenon far more deeply and, and, it, and it, all its complexity in a way that I'd never come to before and I would not have come to had I not linked up with him and also David Jacobs who um, <clears throat> was Bud's close friend and lived and worked in Philadelphia and uh, was at the time a professor of history at Temple University is now retired but all these doors opened uh, because of this uh, fortuitous meeting in 2008. So um, that started me on a journey of investigation into this phenomenon, which I record in the later chapters of the book and a whole, a whole, it introduced me to a whole load of people whose narratives and ideas I weave into the later chapters of the book. So that's the, that's a positive history of the, of the whole thing. No, it's fascinating and we're kind of starting going backwards, but it feels like that's been the process for you, that it's taken till those those later stages of you doing the work to realise what had happened back in the past, because as you've, as you've described, you had experiences that you would now put down to being part of this programme or phenomenon as a child, didn't you? Yeah, yeah no, but, um, a lot of people, kids don't realise <coughs> that if they, as, as an example, a minority of children have persistent, really aggressive nosebleeds. Uh, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, in those years, I I had violent nosebleeds at, at school, um, in class. It, it, the blood would come running out of one nostril or the other nostril or dripping on the desk. And I became quite notorious for them. And uh, the school called my parents in and suggested very and very strong terms that they'd take me to a physician and uh, get me to a specialist and see what was causing this because it was quite disruptive in the class. My mother said to me at the time, she said, oh, I had most nosebleeds as a kid, just like you. And they, they just, even in the end, they just stopped. It's just one of those things, you know. Uh, obviously, I, I know now why she had nosebleeds um, because um, some of your audience will know that abductees have implants in uh, put in certain parts of their body, and one of the prime sites the they use is the uh, 
the cribriform plate next to the old, where the olfactory nerve goes into the brain. It's right at the top of the nasal pharynx. And when these implants get slightly dislodged because you might, might have a sneezing fit or a cold or, you know, it, over time they haven't been put in quite right, that they result in nosebleeds, quite bad, uh, quite bad nosebleeds. That was almost certainly the cause of it. So no, I, none of us knew anything about this at the time. Uh, it was just that Steve, as a kid who has nosebleeds, and he's, it's a really real nuisance, and we can't stop it. They took me to the GP, and I think I, we went to a specialist, but he couldn't recommend anything particularly to to stop it. Uh, so obviously the, the, the medical uh, specialists they took me to weren't particularly you know, um, acquainted with the abduction phenomenon because no, almost nobody is. So they could suggest nothing and, you know, no x-rays were taken because nothing which might show up on x-ray was suspected. So mm. it wasn't done. And, you know, there were other things like night terrors and so forth, which I had as, as a child as well. And um, um, a number of things which only in, when I was, um, when I was 16 years old, it, did I have a real memorable alien abduction experience? And even then, I didn't put it down as alien abduction because in 1972 in the UK, the, it really wasn't a thing. That you, I mean, I think the Hill case was known about by a tiny minority of the population who'd, who'd sure. read about these things in UFO magazines. And maybe the Antonio Villas-Boas case was known about, but it's so fantastical and so improbable that nobody really took it that seriously. And um, um, it was only in 1972. So when this thing happened to me in 1972, which I describe in the book in some detail, uh, I didn't have any anything to attach it to. I just didn't understand it at all. The, the incident in 1972 was <clears throat> happened in the summer, like when you were yeah. 16, yeah. and it involved some of the classic hallmarks of yeah. an abduction experience, including yeah. the period of missing time. Yeah. I believe it was, what, around two hours? Two hours, two, two hours, hours and 20 hours? minutes, yeah. Two hours and 20 minutes, yeah. Uh, it was that. Talk us through some of the basics, yeah. What yeah, I had um, a compulsion about two or three days prior to this to... Uh, uh, the background is I... I when I was 16 years old, I had to my first job and I just worked the summer holidays in a big uh, nursery in Cheshire uh, where who grew thousands and thousands of rose trees. And I worked there from, mon from Sunday through to Friday, uh, five days a week in the week and a double time on Sunday. So, you know, it was worth doing. Um, Saturday was the only day I didn't go to work, so I slept in and did other things on Saturday. A couple of days prior to that, on the Thursday night, the 20th of, 20th of July, 1972, I had this really strong compulsion, which made, makes no sense now uh, and made no sense then, a really strong compulsion to get up on Saturday morning because I was supposed to go somewhere. And... You know, if I explain that at the time, and I explain it to many people now, it doesn't make any sense to them. But on Saturday morning, I woke, I woke up at five o'clock and the this sun was above the horizon at that time in the morning in, in, in the summer. And I 
got my clothes on and went out. And I walked about a mile from the house. We lived in a suburban neighbourhood in, in Cheshire, in uh, on the Wirral. And I walked uh, about a mile to where some new houses were being built on the Greenfield site. And I thought, as I got there, I thought, okay, I'm f- this is where I'm supposed to be. What now? And suddenly, it was two hours and 20 minutes later. And I was surrounded by blue and indigo lights and that that part of the spectrum filling the air and pulsating and this whooshing in my ears. And I found myself looking at my wristwatch, which is the strap had come loose, I don't know how, and um, noticing that two hours and 20 minutes gone by. It was now um, five past eight. When I arrived at this place, what seemed like two seconds earlier, it was quarter to six. And suddenly it was five past eight and all these all these things were happening uh, I heard a voice in my head um, <clears throat> not not in my ears but in my head that I was going to forget everything that happened this morning and I wouldn't remember so I wouldn't don't even try you know you're not going to remember anything anyway it was a very sort of bored sounding monotonous um, uh, completely uninspired uh, a voice in my head that said, you're not going to remember any of this, so don't, don't even think about it. And out, um, I was inside one of these part-built houses, which is my three-quarters built. So it had walls and, and uh, timbers between the floors and the roof, but there was no window panes. There was no window frames or panes. Uh, there were just rectangular holes in the brickwork where the windows were to be fitted and I was standing in front of one of these apertures where the window's window was to be fitted, and I looked right in front of me, about 100 metres away, and about 30 metres off the ground, was a flying saucer. Uh, clear as day, uh, I, associated, I associated it with these whooshing sounds and these blue uh, indigo flashing lights all around me, and this, this thing drifted from left to right of my vision, and it disappeared, you know, right behind the brickwork. And suddenly, everything was back to normal. And I just thought, what the hell was that? You know, what, what was I doing here? And um, I decided I'd just walk home, you know. What else was there to do? And because um, it was already after 8 o'clock. And I thought, what? where's that time gone? Where was I? Was I... Was I in some sort of coma, was I, did I pass out or did I just forget everything that happened? What, what was that? And I felt my left left cheek was wet, damp, and kind of felt uncomfortable. And when I got home, I looked in the bathroom mirror and there was a round circular bar, the size of a coin, uh, a large coin on the left cheek, which was raw and red like the skin had been burned and um i i it took about a day or two to scab over and then it took three months to completely disappear now it it, it healed um pretty much in alignment in in uh, accordance with how you'd expect an, in, an injury to, to heal i had no idea where it come from i thought it was associated with this weird thing that happened on saturday morning and uh i you tend to be quite uh 
um, attentive to your appearance when you're 16 years old. You tend to be quite self-conscious about it, yeah? But somehow I managed not to notice it, to ignore it and not pay any attention to it. And nobody seemed to ask about it. And it was rough for three months and eventually the skin uh, flaked off and it it disappeared. Um, The whole experience was so incomprehensible and I had nothing to explain it or attach it to. So I just buried it in the back of my mind and thought, one day maybe I'll understand that weird thing that happened on the Saturday morning, July the 22nd, but I've got other things to get on with now. And so, so I got on with other things, you know, rock music and playing the guitar and uh, and uh, planning to go to university and all the rest of it. So, and so it kind of pushed it into the background. It did emerge from time to time when I gave it some thought and particularly on the subject of strange things that happen to people, you know, come into the conversation when you, you're with a group of mates in the pub or something. I thought about that. and I, I could never really explain it even to myself with anything that made any kind of sense. So uh, it was only in uh, 2007 that it all became obvious what it was. Price that. No. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. Something that's always held me back from making more use of my Apple Pencil for notes is the feeling across the screen still felt like I'm writing on glass, especially when scribbling notes for podcast episodes. Paperlike have very much changed how I use my existing iPad and it's giving it a new lease of life. Paperlike is perfect for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need. I'm no artist either, but my kids certainly approve of using it to draw and doodle, and I can have peace of mind the screen underneath is completely protected. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. From now until the end of January, Paperlike is also including their digital pro planner bundle at no extra cost with every order placed through the Paperlike store. Plus, shipping is completely free. Ready to do more with your iPad? Then head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO to get started. First off, thanks for sharing because any kind of experience like that is very intimate and that that takes a lot for anyone to discuss. So thank you. I just want to ask, so you, you've grown up with this experience being there and you've, you've buried it yourself in your kind of the back of your mind, your subconscious almost. Did you ever share it with anyone as you as you grew up, even if it was those moments with a mate in the pub and you've had a few too many or with a, a girlfriend or a wife? Or was there ever a moment the story came out or almost came out? I may have told certain parts of it. A weird thing happened to me in 1972, one Sabbath morning, but I don't, can't make any sense of it. But I think I have a vague memory, not very clear, but I have a vague memory of seeing a flying saucer. And mm-hmm. once I said that, a lot of people would just go, you know, <laughs> you know um, the disbelief would come out, in, certainly among some of the audience. So I, I really stopped mentioning it, which stopped talking about it because I had nothing to attach it to. I had no, could make no sense of it. Uh, I think maybe if if I were growing up in the United States, 
maybe in the 1970s or 1980s, it would have been a little bit more, a little bit more in the public discourse. Not a lot, but a little bit more in the public discourse. But in in um, in provincial England, in northwest England, in 1972. Yeah. No, made no sense. I, I can under I can understand that, and you're right that geography and location and time mm. plays a factor into these conversations, and even people's own religious upbringing can take a, be a factor in these kind of discussions. Absolutely, yeah, very very important. Yeah. A lot of people attach uh, their abduction experiences to religion, to, to religious experiences. Yeah, they do. I've heard you mention, and I always like to shout out where possible on on Howard Hughes Unexplained, which I'm a fan yeah. of, and I've listened to Howard for many years. Yeah. You mentioned that missing time isn't actually missing time, and that during the abduction, that uh, and I'm just reading this now, so I've got it correct. The memory is removed from the short term memory and placed into long term memory. Is that correct? That's what you said. Yeah, I um, nobody really understood this really un- until. Um, Dr. J- David Jacobs got a, did a lot of work on this, and a couple of other people have tattooed, but particularly he listened to abductees very attentively for many years, and he, he tried to, he, 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 because the missing time phenomenon was quite well known, that people, people um, are walking along a country road and suddenly it's an hour later or suddenly two hours later, and they're, they're, 200 metres on from where they were a second before, or um, a couple is driving in a car and they see a bright light in the sky which gets bigger and bigger, and they stop. What they they usually say is, we stopped to take a better look at it. And sometimes they open the doors or the windows and get out of the car. Sometimes they don't. But suddenly, it's two hours later. And the craft, the the light in the sky is either gone or is receding, and they wonder what's happened to the time. Now, what's happened to the time is you have lived through the time normally, but you have no memory of it. It's it. That's the the the, the title of Bud Hopkins' first book was Missing Time. The, the, this book in 1982, and it's it's been universally recognised as, as associated with the phenomenon as missing time. What they're doing is they have um, these mind scan procedures where they can stare into your eyes or one of your eyes from a couple of centimetres away and they lock into the optic nerve and they do something to your neurological uh, framework. They do something to your brain where the experience uh, that you've had is somehow put into long-term memory, taken out of the short-term memory so that when you get back home or, you know, when they've, when they've left, all you remember is it was, it was uh, half past eight and then suddenly it was half past ten, just like that. And the clock in the car said suddenly it's it suddenly half past ten. And we both felt something really weird had happened to us and uh, something very strange had happened and we felt very uncomfortable we've no idea when the time went where the time went is that you lived it normally but the memory of it has been put into long term memory where it remains until you develop a technique to access it and and, and dig into your long term memory and when it, 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 you can retrieve it 
Um, I give quite a lot of time to this in the later chapters of the book, how this works, how memory recovery, work, recovery works. And um, it's sometimes called hypnosis, but it's not completely accurate to call it hypnosis. But because you're retrieving memories from the long-term memory that have been deliberately buried there, let me ask, Steve, why do you think that the memory is left there at all? It would either, to me, surely make sense to leave it in the short term, in which case that's up to the, the experiencer to go ahead and discuss, but why not remove it completely? That's something I can't answer. I can tell you what the abductors seem to have, have said to a couple of um, abductees I've interviewed. Uh, they say, we... We leave it in the long-term memory because in the future you're going to need those uh, those memories of these things that happen to you and we'll liberate them from you when the time is right or something like that. You've, you've mentioned Bud Hopkins' books and how important it was meeting Bud mm. and others face-to-face and I wonder, in meeting individuals like Bud Hopkins, like Peter Robbins, discussing these with Nick Pope, mm-hmm. what did you learn about your own experiences and your own abduction experience that you maybe didn't know before? Um, I, well, I learned to recognise that, that what had been happening to me uh, throughout my life was actually pretty normal for abductees, and they weren't unique to me. Um, they happened to... You know, I, I go into, in, in Chapter 8, I go into how many abductees there might be in the human population and why that number and what how the intergenerational aspects are, of the phenomenon works. And I think there's between 150 million and 400 million people in the local, local population who are involved in this. And I think at least 95% of them, maybe 98% of them, have no idea what's happening to them. They just feel they lead weird lives. They lead, lead strange lives. They keep quiet about it. Um, they lead, lead a secret life. They never, they can never understand what, why their lives are so strange, but they just carry on. Um, but I think there's, there's that many people. Uh, between 2 and 5% of the global population are abductees. And I think that percentage is is uh, a significant key to what these abductors are doing and why and, and how how they're conducting this programme. Without going into all that detail, because again, the listeners will want yeah. to go out and buy the book and read this for themselves, but yeah. just to touch on that, what, what sort of conclusions are you coming to that if there's a programme that is deliberately set up mm-hmm. by one or more entities, mm-hmm. which are technologically far superior and more advanced than us, mm-hmm. To, to manipulate us as a species, why has this happened in the first place and, and to what end? I honestly, I wish I could answer that. Um, it, it seems like they want some kind of long-term presence here and they are preparing the ground extremely thoroughly. Um, if they're in it, you see... I write about in, in the final chapter that, that about the universe. It's, it's um, um, 13.7 to 14 billion uh, years old, we'll, all our, our astrophysicists and cosmologists tell us. And, you know, there's there's confluence of several proofs that this is the case. Um, planet Earth and the solar system, our sun and our system, is only one-third 
the age of the unit of the known universe. So it's about 4.5 million uh, billion years old. But the Earth is 4.5 billion. Um, in the centre of our galaxy, there are uh, billions, or maybe 200 billion star systems that are three times older than ours. So what uh, any life forms who've evolved and developed on, in, on those hundreds of billions of star systems, what some of them, the technologies some of them may have mastered and developed are pretty much beyond what we can imagine. Um, and I think there's evidence that some of them are being, uh, the abducting entities that I'm writing about have been coming here certainly since, I think the program started in about 1890 or between 1890 and 1900. And I give, I bring quite a lot of evidence to um, the table in the book that, that there's, that to support that, you know, it's very, it's very specific, uh, specifically began then and why I think that that's, that's the case. Why we may have had plenty of uh, uh, alien intelligences interacting with us in different ways prior to that. But I think this particular program starts in, in, in between 1890 and 1900. Um, and that they planned what they're doing in the, in, that what they do, they, they, they took some origin adductees in the early part of the program and they have developed the gray aliens, which are not actually the aliens themselves. The, the, the grey aliens are actually workers um, genetically designed and bred to carry out the programme to do the grunt work and um, they, the, the programme is designed to work over several generations three to four generations who knows what they're doing or what they have been doing to uh, the, the adoptee lines I don't really know what they've, they've been doing to them but there's a reason why, which is only we can only speculate about. There are reasons why they take the children of abductees and their children and their children, or not necessarily all the children, but some of them tend to be abducted and their children and their children. So for for every one uh, on Earth now who's an abductee who's having abduction experiences, you can pretty much guarantee that one of their parents or both and one of their grandparents or more and one of their great-grandparents was in the program and they they, they they are following this genetic line and that's how that's how it's done was so what end in your life yeah no no please no. finish off yeah uh, to what end we can only speculate about and there's, there's endless speculation about this I really tread very carefully when dealing with areas of speculation i like that no that that's fair enough it's obviously there's obviously some reason to them why they do it in that in that way was there a time in your life you feel these events had slowed or or finally stopped completely for you good question um i've had fewer incidents the last couple of years but I, i've had some moderately serious health issues in my 60s um nothing has finished me off but um you know 
things like that or rather hadn't happened. But um, many abductees in their 60s and 70s say that the interval between events spaces out. Um, there's a guy called Bob Jacobs, who's uh, a US ex USA AF guy. Do you know who he is? He was I've involved. Yeah, he was involved in um, uh, the Malmstrong uh, incidents in the 1960s, yeah, yeah, where course, yeah. He, yeah. he was part of the film crew that filmed uh, uh, a, an intercontinental ballistic missile test over the Pacific Ocean, hundreds of miles away, with with the very high intensity cameras, where which was attacked and um, monitored by. Uh, a classic flying saucer, you know, that one of the, the kind of dome shape with a, you know, the classic saucer shape. Um, mm. And it was caught on film and the Air Force confiscated the film. And, you know, it, there's, there's a, a, a whole story about, behind that. But Bob's now just over 80 and he's still having, he, uh, I'm not um, giving away any um, confidential information now because Bob wrote a book with co-wrote a book with Robert Hastings, who is a, a close friend of mine, um, called Confession, uh, which was published in 2019. Bob is writes the second half of the book, and Robert Hastings wrote, wrote the first half of the book. Uh, Bob Jacobs stays in his 80s. He's still having incidents, and he's still having uh, nighttime in, in, in abductions that scar his body and so forth, and and you know, produce marks on his on his skin. So he's in his eighties and it's still going on with him. Um, with me, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent or as frequent as it used to be. I will say that. But I had an event, um, uh, two notable events last year, and one or one very significant event the year the year before, maybe. There, there may have been more abductions that are not remembered, but um, one of these events last year resulted in me coughing out uh, what I think was an implant in the in the top part of the nose, and that it bled for twenty four hours when that implant went out was out. And after several weeks, uh, I've got the dates in the book. What the the the, the ex expire the um, expulsion of the implant was in February 2022 and the um, uh, the replacement was in April 2022 when they, they obviously discovered that it wasn't transmitting anymore and they put it back and also when they put it back they I, I had a nosebleed for 24 hours so I, that's still going on and uh, the year before I had um, a nighttime event which resulted in the classic um, equilateral triangle of puncture marks on my left arm, which I woke up in the middle of the night and I could feel the, the wet, uh, wetness on the left arm. And I went uh, in the kitchen to see what it, what, what had happened and I had these three equilateral puncture marks on, on my left arm. So they, they're still going on and I'm, I'm in, in my 60s now, but they don't seem to be as frequent as they were when I was younger. No. We talk about these beings and visitations being far more advanced than we are, yet some of the medical procedures seem still quite 
barbaric or rough, don't they? But if you watch Star Trek, the, the original series, or the, the Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, all the medical procedures are painless and small injection guns yeah. in your neck. A little, yeah, a little puff of air and that's you, you're cured. <laughs> Yet it still sounds quite quite brutal what these beings well, tend to do in terms of procedures. Yeah, they, they yeah, they do. It does. I, you see, I, I don't really speculate about about how a future um, an extremely advanced race might might deal with medicine or what they're actually doing to their human abductees. But you, you just have to say the evidence is that they do what they do and hmm. maybe they that's the only way they can do it or the you know that's the most painless and non-intrusive way they've they've found but that's what they do um when they take little chunks of your tissue um the scoop marks i mean you, you've seen the scoop marks andy um uh, in the in the, the appendix yes yeah but you, you've probably seen them in the in the ufo literature it's oh, yes, quite, yes, quite yes, ubiquitous. so that's what they do um you'd think you know, a Star Trek-like civilization wouldn't have to do that. <laughs> they might have a more subtle way of uh, of sampling you, but that's what they do. So you, you just have to say the evidence is that they do these things because we have the evidence in front of us. What, what I would love to ask you then, Steve, I appreciate, you know, you, you don't want to speculate because without knowing it would just be that just that pure speculation. But to, to look at the evidence that's there... Yeah. It would have to indicate that, and many people like to talk about these other beings as being very much love and light or very peaceful, very harmonious. But for me, it reminds me of how the human species treats other species we see as lesser or inferior to us, even if it comes to animal testing, that, you know, we're, we're going to do our best to be what we would call humane, but it's still going to leave a mark. It's still going to be traumatic and we have to do it for some other greater good. Would that is that something you've thought about yourself? Yes, um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, there may be beings who are f- full of light and benevolence, uh, who are visitors and who, who interact with us, but the abducting entities are here in very large numbers, and there's a big program and it's structured over a century or, or more. And it's, it's obviously invested an enormous amount of resources into this. And um, I, I, I write in the book that, you know, is there any evidence that the human race is not the first time they've done this? I mean, there is evidence that the human, that this is not the first time they've done this. Um, we won't go into all, all that now, but there is evidence. Um, so, there may well be, and I, I, I'm really confident there are other alien civilizations which occasionally, perhaps frequently, visitors, but they're not in the numbers that, uh, of these entities that are um, uh, prosecuting the abduction program. This is an enormous uh, enterprise and there's enormous amounts of resources invested in it. In your time researching your own experiences and speaking to others, I wonder, have you ever come across cases where people have been abducted but ultimately not returned?